I think of myself as a gender immigrant and, you know, I lived across the border and I always wanted to be on the other side of the border and it wasn't healthy or safe for me on the other side in many ways. When I immigrated, everything like changed and actually got a lot better. But when I tell people my history, they always change and I always get treated as an immigrant. That was hard at first because, you know, I wanted to belong, but I also got older and got wiser and more generous and more compassionate and recognized there's nothing wrong with being an immigrant. I'm actually kind of proud of it. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In today's episode, we speak with Gail Roberts, a seasoned fundraiser whose journey began at the age of six with a backyard carnival. Now, as Chief Development Officer at Larkin Street Youth Services, she's raised over $200 million to combat youth homelessness and in support of other good causes in San Francisco. A respected figure, Gail is not only a leader in nonprofit fundraising, but also a proud transgender professional. Her story is as unique as it is inspiring. Uh, I, this this interview is about you know me as a fundraiser and my life as a trans person and how those things intersect. So when I got my first fundraising job two dozen years ago, the San Francisco Chronicle wanted to profile me with a cover story. And I very reluctantly agreed to that because I wanted to support the cause that I was working for. And um, I thought the interview went well. We spent 55 minutes talking about the programs and it was a site visit meeting with our clients on five minutes talking about me and my history. Um, but I saw a draft of the article before it came out in the Sunday paper on the cover. Um, and it was horrible. And uh, I won't go into the details, but it was it was not it was, um, you know, they use they use what in my community, they what they call your dead name, which I would just simply call my birth name. And there was other framing devices in it that um, it was not a complimentary profile in the ways that uh, I would have hoped. And um, so I called the author, I called the writer and I said, you know, you either pull this or you rewrite it. Um, they rewrote it. And I swore I would never do another interview about being trans for the rest of my life. Wow. And that changed a couple of years ago, but you're the first person to ask me since then. Well, I appreciate your being willing to, to talk and, and to talk about something which where clearly that must have been traumatic. So I can see why you didn't want to. Um, I was young and I did scream and cry a little bit when I first heard about it. Um, and I have more sympathy and understanding for the paper and the author back then. But um, we all have to set our boundaries in our life. And um, but this work, I think, also teaches us um, about compassion about um, giving people second chances. And, um, and uh, you know, this is not on TV, so I give less fucks, you know? I'm, I'm 61. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do wanna maybe circle back to that later because part of that, embedded in that, is the way people talked about things and the way they didn't understand the boundaries of the people they were speaking to, clearly. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, else well, they had to make that call. You know, that's a lot of the work that we do, right? Often fundraisers come from certain communities and then represent other communities. And this is a big challenge in our work. 
Right. And probably not always by choice. Mm. I mean, this idea about representing communities is funny because it has, with that article, it sounds like they were asking you about you and the organization, but then they, uh, they didn't necessarily have a, a way of talking about that that was honoring you or I think I think there was just a lack of language and understanding. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, at the time, I might not have been a forget as forgiving, but I am now. Um, so forgiveness is is a uh, is a part of your character anyway. But we were talking even before the interview started about where you're from, mm. and there's a lot of um, of forgiveness in the Midwest. I don't know if you always had it in the Midwest, but I, I certainly have felt that from time to time. You're originally from Minnesota. Is that right? I am. Yes. Where, whereabouts? Uh, I grew up in and around uh, the Twin Cities. I've lived in most of the suburbs, so western suburbs, eastern suburbs, uh, downtown, um, all, the, all the places. It, it's, it's a beautiful part of the country. You were talking about the weather, um, but the weather is... Uh, it definitely um, challenges a person. There's, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, cold and and uh, and wind and snow and all of that, and it's a lot different from where you're living today. Um, what yeah, I mean, I'm in San Francisco. It's a, it's, it's a lot easier here. <laughs> uh, but Minnesota it has its its own thing going on. And you originally come from, I guess, that world of the arts. And that's very strong there as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I'm actually working on planning a reunion trip to go back home. I haven't been in a, over a decade. My All my family followed me out here. My mom's here. My sister's here. Um, so I don't have uh, immediate family as, as close back there in the day. Um, but I, I do miss it. Uh, I, I love the Midwest. Uh, I'm a Midwesterner th through and through. If you, you know, if you really know me, that's one of the ways to understand who I am. Um, and yeah, I, when I graduated from college, I went to the University of Minnesota. I'm a gopher. Um, I started as an intern in an arts organization. And then that kind of for the next 15 years, I worked in the arts. Um, I ran my own venue. I had a production company. I worked, uh, I ran a national trade association, published a newspaper, um, worked in all the different kinds of arts, uh, multimedia, video, um, spoken word, um, lots of various places. Um, and ended up on the arts council for the Minnesota regional arts council at one point. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, 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 a something I don't get to do as much now that I've moved here. I have different work uh, and the economy is just the economics of living in the Bay are different than in the Midwest back then. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Were you working then as a practicing artist as well as a producer? Because you had all these production roles, distribution, founder, owner, but were you also creating? Um, very little. In fact, I, um, but when I, uh, after I transitioned, um, I gave myself permission to do the things that I'd never given myself permission. I had a, um, you know, maybe you can relate, you know, a, a family that said you need to do something practical. And so, you know, I worked, um, but like making art that just was like too far outside of that box. Um, and so, you know, I did a few things when I back then, but mostly I was the person behind the scenes. And I realized later I was using other people's voices to represent myself. 
and to find myself. Um, so after I transitioned, I went to art school for a year and a half and um, throwing pots and doing performance pieces. And I turned my home into a open studio and did the open galleries once a quarter um, and uh, really enjoyed that. Yeah. But talk more about kind of letting other people serve as the voice. That was such an interesting observation. Where, where do you think that comes from? Um, well, you know, I can only speak for myself. But I always I've always known who I was, but I didn't have language for it. Or I didn't have role models. Um, and I was definitely terrified of coming out, um, losing my family and other people in my life. My father was a deeply homophobic man, violently so. Um, and when he passed, when he was uh, when I was in my early 30s, um, I made changes in my life, but I never felt I could before that. Um, that's just me and my own psychology. Um, and as I was exploring the arts, um, I had like a, I called it a cacophony chorus. It was a spoken word troupe of a dozen rotating different people um, from diverse backgrounds and identities. And I would host different showcases, um, Mall of America, um, First Avenue, the home of Prince, you know, these iconic Midwestern places probably nobody knows about, but other than, you know, if you grew up there, you knew, know of them. Um, and uh, with the local bowling alley, they had a theater that hosted us once a month. And so um, did a Barnes and Nobles, places like that. So I would curate and I would bring together people around different themes and different uh, identity groups to do um, performance work. Um, my first five years was working in video and I would curate a video collection from um, we had a strong collection from the Native American community because it's strong in the area, also kind of social justice work, some youth and arts programming. Um, and then I ended up becoming a, a coordinator of an independent distribution uh, network. This was back in the day when we were still using um, videotape. Um, and so I've always, um, at least a large part of what I've enjoyed doing is trying to craft culture and um, find my place in the world. So uh, this cacophony um, chorus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. That, yeah, so spoken word. Not a big moneymaker. Not, not a fundraiser, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, finding money for that might have been hard, but, uh, but that says a lot too, because talking about finding a voice, there's, it's, it's always hard in the world of, of writing and spoken word yeah. to uh, not, yeah, you're not a writer, yeah. always find a, an audience for it, but maybe also to um, uh, find the words to describe what you're trying to communicate. So talk, talk a little bit about that. That, was, that must have been um, Well, okay, if we can go down that path. So uh, yeah, I had uh, at one point in my life, I had the performance troupe and to try to figure out how to pay money for it, um, I created a, a newspaper. Um, and it was a monthly arts newspaper and I, I would write it and lay it out on my little Mac and top cut and paste, right? You know, this is back in the day, go to Kinko's. Um, and then I would drive it down to where the Star Tribune used to get printed and we'd print 15,000 copies and I'd pick them up the next day in a little Jeep and I'd drive around town to 200 locations and drop them off. But, um, I sold advertising. And so that was my revenue, you know, uh, strategy, um, and, you know, I freelanced and I, um, I I did, you know, productions for other companies and things and I got paid for that. So it's always been very, I've always been very entrepreneurial. Um, and yeah, just um, 
there was something about the arts that's always attracted me um, about finding your voice um, about a place where everybody belongs or there's always there's a like the arts is so broad like there's some there's something for everybody in the arts you know you can find what you like um and the arts community by and large is very accepting and affirming um and so you know i i just gravitated toward that i think you know when i was younger my high school grad you know uh, counsel my you know, um, counselor counselor you know, college cultures that we should go into science, the art, the sciences and tech. Mm -hmm. But um, I've always been a little bit of everything or both in many ways. So you eventually made that that trip to San Francisco. How did that happen? How did you decide to move to California? Um, so I had a partner at the time and um, I was looking to make some changes in my life as well. And they were very supportive of that. I uh, took a a train ride to Portland, to Seattle, to San Francisco. This was part of, I was actually researching the arts community at the time, doing an article about that. Um, we looked at Port, uh, Houston, other places, but we came out here to, to San Francisco and they took one look, um, literally driving down the road from the airport to our hotel and was like, this is where we need to move. And they were really the one who um, was the instigator in that move, I was in my mid thirties. So I've spent half my life in the Midwest and half my life out here in the Bay. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. And we can talk about that as little as much as you want. Well, uh, you introduced that concept of kind of acceptance and you know people embracing things. And that's certainly true of the world of the arts. That's the world that I knew in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, and, but that's a microcosm. I think a lot of people maybe look at at uh, California generally, and maybe the Bay Area specifically is a place where you can be yourself. Um, what was that your experience in moving there initially? Um, well, I think the Bay Area is much more complicated than um, than a lot of people in our PR. I think that um, I, you know, I'm, as part of the LGBTQ plus community, I found a home here. I'm also white, uh, middle, upper class. Um, you know, if you're a person of color or lower income, the Bay Area is not that uh, affirming for you. Um, and San Francisco in particular, um, if you just look at the demographics that they tell the story. So I think it's um, a complicated story about um, San Francisco and California in general. I think that, you know, it's much safer for me that, to live here than in many places in the country, unfortunately, uh, and becoming increasingly so. Um, and it's where I found, you know, a home and work. Um, and I don't know where else I would move, to be honest, you know, um, but, you know, I always, we, me and my family now, we have conversations about that. About whether California is... Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm 61. I'm, my family members are a little younger than me. Um, so, you know, thinking about where do we always end up? Cause growing old in San Francisco is just, it's a hard, hard thing to do. It's, a, it's expensive here. Yes, it is. It is expensive out there. Uh, it, it's also a place where, uh, once again, it seems like things have changed over time. So when you first moved there, it, it was the environment, uh, one where, you could really uh, settle into your roots and your work and develop a community. And today, is it still as 
as easy, especially given the the finances of the area? I mean, trying to live there um, on a home and I, I I think it's kind of been to be harder now. Uh, I moved here during the first tech boom in the middle of the nineties. And I remember trying to find an apartment. I was I slept on the floor of a warehouse for a few weeks and then tried to find an apartment. And, you know, the people would be lined up at the door to see it. And, you know, you'd have to make a bid, you know, when you're there and pay more than what it was offered for. Um, but the prices have just, you know, gone up and the housing stock, since I work in the housing space, I can talk a little bit about this. We're about 80,000 units short. Um, and, you know, there's the the rental prices are at the top of the market in the entire US. And um, there's not a lot of production coming down the pipeline, even though there's some state uh, regulations or and pressure around that. So um, I think it's gotten harder um, over the years. Um, there's still opportunity here. People are moving here. I met one of my cousins recently I'd never met before. He just moved here to you know, become an AI guy. Um, but you know, it's it's not an easy place. We have a, a young person who spoke at one of our events last week um, oh, amazing young man. Um, grew up in St. Louis, moved here to, you know, make a living. Um, also slept on somebody's uh, couch for a year. Finally, um, came to found Larkin Street. Um, we didn't have uh, dedicated housing for him. So he ended up in our shelter program for several months. Then he went into congregate housing um, and then into independent living, which is where he is now. And over that course of time, he completed not one, but three college degrees. I mean, so like, you know, it's remarkable. So it is possible to still, you know, pursue the dream here, um, but it is not easy. When you first went out, I guess it was, the arts were still the focus of your professional life. Is that right at that point? Uh, you know, that was my heart. But I I, I had um, uh, since you, you know, you worked in the arts for a while yourself, like you, you get to meet people. And so I had a network. In Minnesota, and I came out here, and I knew nobody, um, and I needed a job. So uh, I got a marketing job at a, a, a nonprofit that did uh, management support for another other nonprofits, and ended up becoming the director there. Um, and then that's kind of my whole course, you know, shifted over a period of time away from the arts. Um, but you know, I went to a performance piece over the weekend, and I mean, you know, and I enjoy being a an audience member as well. So it's all good. Well and you were always an entrepreneur along the path anyway, either needing I, to. I, I think uh, that, yeah, I got that from my father. He was, that was him. That was him. Yeah. I, so you were out there, you were working in marketing and mm -hmm. uh, that was also, I guess, this period where you were changing, you know, changing professionally. And also you, uh, I, I guess, I don't know how uh, soon it was after that, that you transitioned, but can you talk a little bit about the professional context for that, what that was like? And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, so, yeah, I moved here in the mid to late 90s um, and I started to explore my identity and found community and I found a job um, and uh, outed myself to my boss who um, was part of the LGBT community himself. And I worked there for three years and I slowly, did, you know, kind of did my transition. Um, when I finally, what they call in the community, went full time, I got summarily fired. Um, I had made all my financial goals, and um, but they didn't want me to be the face of the nonprofit. Um, and uh, yeah, I can I can say this now. Um, they literally put me in an office down the hall where nobody could see me, and I had to finish up uh, launching a new website, uh, working with contractors. 
Um, and I was let go, you know, and the severance pay was never paid, the promise paid and uh, tried to, there's no, there was no legal protections back then. And uh, went to the uh, San Francisco Human Rights Commission and the best they could do was to threaten to publicize it. So um, I got a compromise, partial um, severance package. Um, and then I went about trying to find work and I couldn't find work for a year. That's why I went back to school. Um, nobody would hire me. Uh, I found, um, work, uh, part-time working for tips, no pay in a friend's restaurant. And, um, along that way, a friend of mine who I used to work with, who was a fundraiser for that nonprofit invited me to a development executives Roundtable, one of the two trade associations. And I will be forever grateful to Miss Susan Fox for that. Um, I went and I found my people. Um, I volunteered, I became a member, I took every free class I could. I found a job dialing for dollars part-time for the symphony, 20 hours a week, horrible job, but you know, got, gave me some strengths. And then, um, I wrote grants for free for a local arts nonprofit and then, uh, joined a board of an LGBT mental health association. And after six months of intentional work, I finally found full-time work working for uh, Lyric, the LGBT community center here in town. Um, but it was fundraisers. It was the development community that welcomed me. And um, I eventually became the board president of DER. Um, and I just rolled off being uh, on the board of local chapter of AFP. Uh, I love fundraisers. They're my people. They saved me. You, the way you talked about being summarily fired and the way you were treated in that last little part it sounds like in some ways you've put that behind you especially mm -hmm. since you found your your tribe within the fundraising community yeah um, and you certainly are a leader there today the reason i go back to that is it may surprise many people who haven't been through a similar journey uh, that a person can be treated like that that any person can be treated like that under any circumstances, but especially in a place where you felt like you'd found a home yeah. uh, in that city, in that time, in that organization. It, it, um, the legal issues aside, when you look back at that and you think about that, what, what do you imagine is the change, if any, that we've seen from that time to today? Can that happen today to someone? Um, uh, yes, city? unfortunately it can. Um, and in some places it's gotten worse. Um, I mean, we could have a conversation about what's going on in Florida or other places in the country right now. Um, I'd rather not get into all those details. It's, I can direct you to websites for that. Um, yeah, I mean, when, uh, I guess there's two things that come to mind, you know, I needed to make a change in my life. And not everybody was okay with that change. I lost some family members. I lost a partner. Um, my partner was supportive, but couldn't follow me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think of myself as a gender immigrant. I think the immigration metaphor is, I don't know why more people don't use it or are trans, but for me, it's perfect. Um, and, you know, I lived across the border and I always wanted to be on the other side of the border and it wasn't healthy or safe for me on the other side in many ways. And when I, when I immigrated, everything like changed and actually got a lot better. Um, but 
When I tell people my history, they always change and they always get treated as an immigrant. I never get treated as a native citizen. And um, that was hard at first because, you know, I wanted to belong. Um, but I also got older and got wiser and more generous and more compassionate and recognize there's nothing wrong with being an immigrant. I'm actually kind of proud of it. Um, but it's, you know, it, it took me some time to get to that place. So, you know, um, my former boss didn't want an immigrant representing his organization. And, you know, I use that term uh, loosely and not trying to diminish uh, uh, somebody who's immigrated from another country, but it has their similarities. Um, yeah, it, things have gotten a lot better on on one way. There's lots more institutional support. There's a lot more understanding and, and kind of languaging. Um, there's a stronger community. When I first came out, I was like, trying to find people. Uh, and we're everywhere. There are two million of us in the country, more than many of the state's populations combined. Um, and there's a huge backlash, and it's organized, and it it is it is it is um, it is there's a there's a um, there is an organized genocide uh, attempted to be, uh, and I don't use that word lightly, uh, against trans folks in this country um, in the early stages. And um, it is terrifying. You uh, were now part of the fundraising community, which was mm -hmm. a very different place, it sounds like. Um, and that idea that people are just, they're in it together for the work. Um, mm -hmm. There's all different sorts of work and fundraising for all different sorts of causes. You specifically, uh, have chosen, especially in recent years, to work not only within the community, within the LGBTQ plus community, but also uh, specifically there at Larkin with the most vulnerable, arguably the most vulnerable population of all, not just in San Francisco, but in the country. And can you talk a little bit about how you chose to work there, how they chose to partner yeah. with you? Uh, it's partly a choice and partly the only choice I had. Um, it's LGBTQ people. Um, every job that I've ever hired, a full-time job, it's always been a queer person who's hired me. Um, and uh, while I contracted for five, six, seven years off and on and worked for a variety of different organizations, um, once again, the people who wanted me to be, you know, um, representing them were family, so to say. Um, and obviously, you know, when we do this work, it's helpful if we can connect to the mission on a spiritual or a personal level. I think that um, a skilled fundraiser can raise money for anything, but if it's something that they have skin in the game on, um, I think it's more powerful. Uh, the, the, the conversations are more authentic. Um, the asks are stronger. Um, people work harder. Um, so, you know, I work for um, an LGBT, uh, it's not an LGBTQ organization, but it is an LGBTQ affirming organization with about a third of our population coming from there. Um, my CEO is uh, out lesbian. Um, there are other people on the C-suite and the um, the staff who are, are LGBTQ plus. Um, and so I work in a very affirming work and uh, part of the population that we serve, I see myself in. Um, but we work with uh, a growing uh, monolingual non-documented population. We work with a large uh, parenting and uh, pregnant population, um, a growing 
kind of trans or gender non-binary population. Um, you, if you look at the numbers um, and you just look at it kind of systemically, it, it it's very clear why these young people are experiencing homelessness. They've had some sort of systemic or structural challenge in their life. Um, and it's not really individual. I mean, though each one is an individual story. And so um, I've always worked on issues that try to address structural change, because I think that's um, important. How are you conveying that to prospective donors who, again, many may not have had a direct link to this experience that those you're serving are experiencing? And um, you know, I think many people actually have a connection why it's not personal or it might be familiar. Um, I have a board member I won't name, but, you know, they had some children who had some challenges, um, you know, and somebody else had another family member. And so they, you know, there's people come to this in, um, issue in a variety of ways as donors. Um, we had a, a reception last week for a woman who uh, she hosted us. Um, she helped us raise $50 million uh, over a couple of years for a federated or collaborative campaign between us and other groups that's so called rising up um, and uh, very successful. Um, and you'd have to ask her and I'm, I'm not going to name her because I don't want to uh, put words into her mouth specifically, but she's a multi-generational family here in San Francisco. Um, she's a, a, has some hit woman, um, history of people of color in her family and her identity. Um, and she, her family is very prominent and she recognizes the blessings that she's received and she gives back and she worked. She didn't just give money to us. She worked. She came to all the committee meetings and she asked all her friends. And, you know, I get the opportunity to work with amazing women like her or some of our young people who, you know, come from very different class backgrounds, but all of them are looking to make a better world. And, um, yeah, I just feel so blessed, you know, in that um, opportunity. This work is this work is not easy, but this work um, uh, busts open my heart and makes it bigger all the time. What is the hardest part and what's the most joyful part? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think the hardest part is uh, just like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a C-suite officer, right? Um, I manage a team of 12 people. I have a, uh, I have a budget goal of $10.2 million. I'm in a downturning economy. I have 27 board members and 64 honorary board members. And uh, last year we got 4,500 gifts, uh, you know, managing that process, managing the different expectations and communicating and working across lines of class and privilege. Um, you know, it's not always easy. I have an amazing board and executive leadership team and boss. Um, and sometimes I make mistakes and I say the wrong thing. Um, and I have to, you know, apologize or help a couple of people work together more effectively. So it's just the, it's the C-suite stuff that I'm still learning. Um, that's the hard part, I think. Um, and, you know, some of the stress that comes with 
being responsible for raising money that keeps 1,700 youth off the street, let alone 250 people employed. Um, the joy. Um, at that event last week, we had one of our youth speak, and I, I, I already shared, you know, the story, I think. Um, I, it, it just blows open my mind. I, I was the first to stand up and applaud, the first to go over and shake his hand. You know, he did all the work, right? We just created a pathway for him. And that's a lot of what we do at Larkin Street. The secret sauce is we create the pathway. Um, and the work and the youth walk through it, you know, once they're given the opportunity. And I get to witness that sometimes up close, sometimes far away. Um, and um, it just brings immense joy to me. Or even working with one of my team members or staff who, you know, helping them coach them through, you know, a situation. Um, I'm just rolling off the board of the local chapter of AFP because I have to focus on a capital campaign next year. But I ran a the mentorship program there, co-led co it for the last three years. And, you know, just holding space for somebody who's going through some challenges in their professional life. And, you know, I've I've done it before. I can, you know, hold space and maybe reflect back for them some things. And so um yeah, it's it's amazing the opportunities this work has. And um yeah, I'm very, very grateful. I don't know why everybody doesn't want to be a fundraiser. I like it. Seriously, Jay. I meet so many people who are afraid to ask for money. And I'm like, actually, I hardly ever ask for money. I actually just create the context and people usually give. Um, and then, you know, asking for money is not actually that hard. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm imagining that when, again, many people think of the area where you live, they think of this one of these two images which are very big stereotypes the economic stereotypes one mm -hmm. is lots of people living in tents on the street and the other is this amazing stack of cash and of course both of those are are just that they're just you know terrible reductions of real life there yeah but, there, there's some truth and it's also reductions very much so yeah but but it's also this world that you're living in where you are working with people where you're providing them a you know a pathway and um and there's extraordinary need and then there are people in the general vicinity who do have resources that they haven't yet applied oh. to this purpose has that part of this gotten easier or harder uh i've never found that hard um, uh, you know, well, I find it, you know, I, I, I used, we used to have events on top of the Salesforce tower. Um, and so, you know, you go from the tenderloin where our offices are, which is a impoverished inner city neighborhood to the top of the tenderloin where you're kind of, you know, in Nirvana, you know, you, you know, you're literally 50 stories high or whatever. You know, and you do that in 30 minutes. So the perspective changes and the class changes and all the things. Um, but I kind of grew up in that kind of environment, too, of moving around in different places. And so I'm I'm used to that. I think it's maybe one of the things I bring to the work. I had one side of my family that was growing up that was very, very uh, privileged and one side that was not so much. Um, so, you know, that sometimes causes existential tension within myself. Um, but I find within this work, uh, people bring them their best selves to it. 
um, I'm not, you know, having the conversation with somebody that's, um, I don't know, arguing over some sort of financial capital division business plan. I, I don't know, you know, like people aren't, people come to me with an open heart typically, um, and they're looking for a way to make a difference. And most of them don't know how to do that. You know, if you live in the city and you read the news, you you feel a little impotent, even if you're making a lot of money and have a successful life, because there are people who are uh, hurting and there's not a, a strong solution or a pathway. But Larkin Street and other nonprofits, you know, we provide that pathway. Um, so, you know, not only just for a pathway for the youth, but a pathway for the donor to feel empowered. Um, you know, that you could be a person, you, you know, of, of significant means, but feel impoverished. But when I, when you start to give $10, 10,000, 10 million, whatever it is, you realize you have enough for the first time, maybe in your entire life. I provide that opportunity to people and they, they write me the $10,000 check and they say, thank you. And they give me a hug. Right. It's, 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 it's a, there's a spiritual practice to development or fundraising that I think is the thing that I enjoy the most. And that I don't think people who, people who don't do this work, don't understand it. And people who might do just say like grant writing or something don't quite understand. But when you start actually talking to individuals and even people of high net worth or particularly volunteers and others, um, you have the conversations that we've all been waiting for. You and I have talked before about the mechanics and even strategy of fundraising, and <clears throat> you're very innovative in this in this space, um, using AI and other tools to to um, make operations efficient, effective, etc. Um, but there's always the question about what's next, and. It, part of that's just, you know, what is it we want to do to meet the capital campaign goal? But the other parts, what is the vision that we have personally? Mm -hmm. you, you talked about how the first half of your life was out there in Minnesota. Second half of your life has been there in California. Um, those demarcations may be somewhat arbitrary, but I, but I know at this point in my life, I also think about the next third. Oh, what are you yeah, thinking God. about as you look forward to the next third? Not only in terms of the work you do, but the life that you have chosen. Yeah. Um, wow. I didn't know that was going to be the question. That's a good question though. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I turned 62 in May. Uh, and so, you know, there are these kind of mm, arbitrary numbers that shift how we think about things. I've also had some minor illnesses in the last few years that have just, you know, set me back a little bit when I think about what, what, I'm realizing like my midlife is at the end of the midlife, you know, or, or uh, the golden ages or whatever. Cause people say midlife goes to 70 now or whatever. I don't know, but I do, I do think I've, I'm, you know, I've definitely entered the, the final third of my life. Um, the mentorship I do is something that's really important to me. Um, I've been doing that for quite some time. And um, some of my closest chosen family members are people who I've mentored over my life. Um, and I want to continue that. Um, 
on just a practical basis. I own a home in San Francisco with a big mortgage. I got to pay that down. So, uh, you know, I, I, I am working till I retire. Like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at 67 if I can or more. Um, and then I also have a chosen family, which uh, I don't want to get into too many details, but I have a, I have, I'm, I have a chosen queer family and I have people in my life who I really adore. And, um, we are already talking about, you know, what our life like life might look like together in the future. Um, and, uh, I'm, that's the thing that actually brings me the best, the biggest joy is because I have family and I never, for a long time, I wasn't sure I'd ever have family in my life. Um, my mother moved out here, uh, 12 years ago. I adore her. I saw her yesterday. My sister's here. Uh, my partner is here. Um, my chosen daughter lives out in New York, but we're close. Um, and I have some other people who are part of my chosen family as well. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that uh, I won't have to work all the time so that I can enjoy my family more. That would be my, my wish. Well, that's it for this episode of the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast. Thanks very much to our sponsor, DonorSearch, the world leader in fundraising intelligence, and of course, our producer, Jack Frost. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the Donor Search YouTube channel, or wherever you like to listen. And consider giving us a like and a positive review so others can find us too. Check out our live webinars and webcasts on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and come back next Friday for our next interview with another leader in the world of social good. Until then, this is Jay Frost. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.